Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine, and deeper into the stories. Today, you will hear an interview I conducted with an author I've been looking forward to speaking with on the podcast for some time now, in novelist Jonathan Marcantoni. Jonathan is the author of three novels, Traveler's Rest, The Feast of San Sebastian, and The Kings of Seventh Avenue. All of Jonathan's novels, uh, to this point, uh, he has a few coming out uh, very shortly, uh, deal with issues of identity and corruption in the Puerto Rican community, both on the island and abroad. In the interview, we will not only dive into Jonathan's inspirations and his unique methodologies, but also dig into Puerto Rican history some, and the hardships facing Puerto Ricans in their ongoing quest for independence. Um, Jonathan was in town... um, he, he, he doesn't live in New York, I think he lives in Colorado now, um, for an author's event. And, and when this occurs, I always, uh, I always attend. He's been to New York uh, multiple times for events since I've known him. And, you know, not only do I attend to see Jonathan, to, you know, whether he's reading or performing, um, but, but also because the experience is always eye-opening. These are usually Puerto Rican-based events, and, and I'm able to experience firsthand... Um, you know, not only the the a sampling of the vibrant art resonating from the Puerto Rican community, but also um, to get to know uh, you know the community's struggles and 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 their passions and and just just um, you know a little bit more about their history. Um, at this most recent event, there was um, there was an author. His name was Nelson Antonio Dennis. Um, very, very passionate speaker. He kind of blew me away. He is, he wrote a book called War Against All Puerto Ricans. And um, during his talk, he said something which I found very poignant. He, he, he mentioned, you know, there's that line about Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And he was like, well, what happens in Puerto Rico never happened. Um, and this is so true from what I've come to know, um, you know, from that talk by Nelson Antonio Dennis and and just everything I've learned from John over the last few years um, that I've known him. And so that is something, uh, this, this, this interview with him, um, you'll, you'll see from him that, that he has a unique passion for um, not only writing, um, uh, you'll, you'll hear about his, his, his visualism and, and, and the way he approaches his craft, but just, just about everything that's occurred uh, in Puerto Rico. So there's a bit of a history lesson in this um, interview as well. So let's get into it. What we got now is uh, my interview with Jonathan Marcantoni. 
So, uh, Jonathan, welcome to uh, Beyond the Margin. It's great to have you here. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. Yeah, I know. I'm we've, stoked. We've been uh, we've been talking about doing this for a long time, so this is mm-hmm. this is pretty special. Uh, speaking of a long time, um, across the margin has only really existed for like about three and a half years, and you have I've been bugging you from the beginning. No, I know you really like. I was just saying, like about you know three years, like the entire time, you have uh, been a supporter. You have been a contributor, and uh, I just want to say thank you. You've really you've, you've stuck by us, and it's pretty awesome. Uh, well, you know, it's really hard to find to to find outlets that like the the owners and then like the content that's being put out that it it completely matches your aesthetic and uh and that's what you will do for me and yeah. so that's yeah. that's why i've just attached that's, you like a slug no it's good <laughs> stay stay attached no that's the one thing you said is that our ethos kind of aligned and mm-hmm. you know the, the way we approach um not just writing but you know it's 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 trying to change the game a little bit so that's something Thank you again. I really appreciate it. So let's just let's um let's let's get right into it. I uh I I've, I find your writing so fascinating and, and refreshing and um and it's because it's so unique and um, you're always trying new things. I've described it as purposeful and, and we'll get more into your styles and everything. But um, if it's not too much to ask, can you give us a little bit of your background in writing and how you got started? And yeah, of course. Um... It, it's really funny that not not just you, but I, I've heard it from many other people that my writing is deliberate. Yeah, Deli- deliberate's the word I use and, a lot when I speak of your writing. Yeah, yeah, and and what what makes that funny to me is that I I do plan my writing for a long time. Yeah, like my one of the. One of the, I guess, if I have a rule, then uh, this is probably the one, which is I don't write any books that don't stay with me for at least a year. Like the the idea germinates in my mind, and I'm thinking about the characters, the situations, and I'm dissecting it, just mentally picking it apart and trying to find its weaknesses. Yeah. And all if I all before a pen hits pad, right? All. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't do notes. I don't do outlines. No, yeah. Nothing like that. It's all wow. just mental. Um, it's probably why I also like Kendrick Lamar and Jay Z and, yeah. and Biggie because so they all rap that just, way. You know, step in a studio and they're just spinning out. That's exactly that's so crazy that they do that. Yes. However, I read an article well when Biggie met Jay. They were mm-hmm. both like, "You do that too." Like, amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then they were like, "Seriously, like the only two in the game that were doing that." Is Kendrick the same? Yeah, wow. he he does. He'll he'll actually. Um, I've heard some stories where where he, like Dre, would just drop a beat, yeah. and Kendrick like paces around the studio for oh, a couple minutes, yeah, and then just busts out a song. And he's going back and forth. Yeah, he's yeah. He's, he's, he's crafting the whole thing out. I, that mm-hmm. blows my mind. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's amazing yeah. to me. Yeah. But uh, so so I do that that mental development, which which does come from my theater background. Like, yeah. I grew up doing theater uh, starting when I was six. Um, when I was 18, I actually, I almost got arrested <laughs> because it was me and my friends. Uh, so so we, I, I live in this place, uh, Augusta, Georgia. I was best known for the Masters. Oh, you're, you're from Puerto Rico, though, originally. Yeah, yeah. And um, he, yeah, just kind of moved up and down the East okay. Coast yeah. and, and all over. Yeah. Um, uh, I was... 
I was born in Philly, actually, okay. yeah. but I have no memory of it. <laughs> like we were we were gone after You're six gone. months. Yeah. Um, and but I, I spent a lot of my childhood in Puerto Rico, going back and forth from Puerto Rico, and <laughs> mostly the southeast. So yeah. That was where we lived mostly, and. Uh, and so when well, I was let's go back to this array, yeah, yeah, so the, always get arrested, always yeah. get arrested. Um, me and my friends went to this thing, uh, first Fridays and they had, they had bands and, and merchants and like all the stores would stay open a little later. Um, and me and my friends decided, uh, because we had this sort of, it's sort of a, a, a theater company, and we called ourselves Orwells. Okay. Um, and, I, I, because I was born in 1984, gotcha. and um, and there there was also a, a cafe that was called Orwells too that we really yeah. liked. So, yeah, totally. so it's two things coming together. But um, Orwells was basically we would be, because we were tired of the lack of opportunities for young actors when you know all you do is like community theater or school theater or whatever. So we were like, all right, well, we'll write our own stuff. And tape ourselves in like our living rooms, and uh, we even did some crazy stuff, like like drive around, like do a chase scene yeah. in one of our friends' awesome. neighborhoods. And it was, of course, the one friend of ours who was rich. So we're in like this upper class neighborhood, you know, just hauling ass around these curves and everything, and then crashing in his lawn. Yeah, um, was, was that when the police got involved? No, no, that that was another time. Okay. That was another time. We actually somehow did not get caught doing okay. that, yeah. but. <laughs> Uh, but but no, this time no, unfortunately no. Uh, but for for this particular night, we we went out. We were downtown Augusta, and my friends chickened out. We were going to do an improv in the middle of the street, do like whose line is it anyway style in, in the middle of the street, and they chickened out. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I'm going out there. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I came all the way down here. I'm not going home for nothing. So I walk out in front of the, the restaurant we were in, and I just start yelling at the top of my lungs, hey, everybody, who wants to do some improv? And I get this crowd around me. Like, they're going out into really? the street. Yeah, this is a big crowd of totally drunk people. Yeah. And we start doing, like, I'm like, okay, I need suggestions. So they yeah. start giving me suggestions. So I start acting. They're feeling it. Right? Yeah, they're, they're yeah. feeling it. And... Like within 10 minutes, a cop busts through the crowd <laughs> and threatens to arrest me if I don't stop. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. You know, it like, is. Let, it is. Are. let people, that's, I mean, you're harming nobody. Right, you know? right. We're just having a good time, but, you know, yeah. law and order. Yeah. It's never fun. Yeah. Uh, so uh, after that, I mean, like, I, I was leaving. Uh, that night, I felt really good about myself because I thought it was cool. Yeah. And this guy comes up. Um, his name was Jamie Burcham. And he's like, hey, man, I really like what you were doing. And I'm actually starting a street performance company. And we'll have licenses and everything. So you can do the shit that you just did tonight, but you won't get harassed by the cops. So when I did that, I my whole routine was living statue. And, you know, I'd I'd be in a particular stance and, you know, sometimes I'd have uh, paint on me or yeah. costume or whatever. And, um, and I would have a hat on the ground and people would just toss and change and I'd come alive. And when I came alive, I would ask them three things about themselves yeah. and I would make a poem out of it. Oh, wow. So right spot, huh? yeah, right on the spot. And, uh, and, and so from that, I think is where I get the way that I develop stories. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's all in my head. So I'm, I'm doing this for at least a year and with any idea that I have, 
And if it lasts after a year, I'm still like, okay, that's a strong story. Then I go ahead and I, yeah. I start planning on writing it. Um, and so, so when, when people say like, it's really delivered, it's really purposeful. I mean, I guess I, I do spend, you know, like I said, at least a year yeah. developing this in my mind. And I, and I think I also, mm-hmm. um, I apologize for interrupting you saying that it's deliberate and purposeful because, uh, you always have like a unique angle and I don't know if angle is the right mm-hmm. word, but you're always in each, uh, novel or piece that I've read, you're trying something new and, um, and it just, I mean, I think you use the term visualism a lot mm-hmm. when uh, yeah. you write. Can you describe visualism and, and how it pertains to your writing style? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, let me, let me just say first, you know, even with all this mental planning, yeah. when I start writing, I let the story flow. Okay. I, I do my best to get out of the way. Yeah. Um, so if the story starts going in a direction I hadn't expected, I just roll with it. Yeah. And that's where there's a more improvisational aspect, um, where I feel like it's much more free-flowing. Visualism comes from... So, so the, the whole concept of visualism was actually like started by this friend of mine in Puerto Rico. Uh, What's his name? Uh, his name's uh, Herman William Cabasa. You yes, actually absolutely. did his short story. The, uh, uh, the, the Beautiful Machine. The Beautiful Machine, yeah. yes. Oh, is he, is he behind visualism? Did yeah, like, he came up with the whole concept. Brilliant. Um, and, and, and you might remember from, from his story, which yeah. is on across the margin, yeah, if you can look it up, uh, you know, that, that story is very visual heavy. Absolutely. And so what he, uh, kind of theorized with this was that because it, it was him, me and a, a Mexican writer, um, Jesus Ricardo Felix, uh, who is batshit out there <laughs> like he he does a style that um format wise it combines narrative play and screenplay and then he he basically does like these almost like Fellini-esque kind of stories but then he'll add another surreal element on top of that that's very Mexican-centric really? um, and it all, it all comes together no, it, 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 co- it comes together it, it comes together and it's brilliant that's amazing it's brilliant yeah. uh, so what, what Herman came up with was that our, our style, um, it, it doesn't, it's not refined. It doesn't try to be refined. It, what it does is it tries to capture the attention of people with short attention spans yeah. and people who have been brought up on TV and movies more so than books. Yeah. And creating stories that are very heavy on images, but not super descriptive. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we want to use as taking few words as possible. Taking a bit of pretension out of it. Right, exactly. Exactly. Words, yeah. But yeah, we, we want to be super visceral with the words. So yeah. we're very choosy about the words that yeah. we do. Um, we're choosy about kind of what you said, the, the angle. Um, that, that we go about it because we want a particular emotional catalyst like yeah. we're going for an emotional release and the emotional release is more important than if you know than, than, than if the story is technically sound so to speak sure. like it's we're, we're not going for the absolute perfection of yeah. you know some, someone like a 
I mean, that could be like a Henry James or the, something. Uh, the know? editing room as well. As long right, as you, right. As long as you get the, the emotion you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I mean, like, it, it can be sloppy. It, it yeah. might not be, like, technically perfect. It might have some grammatical gymnastics that we do to, to make it happen. But where what we're going for is is raw emotional impact and and that sometimes that's dirty sometimes yeah. that's kind of you know crooked and misshapen no and, so, and, and i mean it's so much of uh your work even i've, I've gotten a look at uh, your upcoming novel i do i want to talk about some of your other novels first mm-hmm. but tristiana your upcoming novel i've gotten to look at um just <coughs> even shared a couple um couple mm-hmm. Uh, segments of it at Across the Margin already, and each one you tried to do uh, was it was inspired by paintings, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, what it was was uh, Jose Saramago, who he he's a Portuguese writer. He won a, he actually won the Nobel Prize, yeah. uh, only Portuguese writer to do so. Yeah. Um, he has a he he has a super dense style where it's like you know because they. In, in in the U.S., uh, especially if you do any kind of like writing um, writing programs in like a college, they always try to tell you to do like short paragraphs. Yeah. Um, Jose Saramago has paragraphs that go on for like ten or twenty pages. Yeah. <laughs> it's one paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but he also he because he doesn't separate between narrative thought and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like everything just runs together. So it is really immersive, but it's also intimidating. Yeah. And you kind of like realize that as a reader. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, his books are ones that, you know, six months after reading it, you'll be like, oh, that's what he was doing. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a David Foster Wallace type mm-hmm. writing where it's, it's yeah. thick and heavy, but it's, it's, it's rewarding if you can dig in right. and really pick it apart. It's, right. it's, it's challenging, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. It, it is. And, and so he had a book called um, The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm where he he kind of rewrote the Gospel of Matthew uh-huh. and what he decided to focus on instead of even Jesus' teachings, he wanted to focus on what it would be to be a God living within a human and experiencing earth the way that humans yeah. do. While at the same With time the having the sort of, of knowledge. Body, right, but having the knowledge, knowledge of, the, of, of yeah, the divine. Yeah. Um, so it's this very poetic, beautiful wow. novel. Um, and the first chapter of it was a description of a stained glass mural of um, Jesus uh, being held by Mary after he was crucified. And what Saramago does was he like he established that image and then he goes on this like philosophical uh, preponderance about... As, you know, as Mary is holding her son and, and as the life leaves him, does he realize the crimes that will be committed in the name of Christianity, yeah. the wars, the yeah. injustices? Does he know all the ways that people will manipulate his image? Yeah, the power and, and right. all, all, the, all the blood that will be shed because of it. Yeah, exactly. And and then you know, and he, and he kind of like w- within this sort of gives like the book's thesis, which is, you know, that we have forgotten collectively what it's truly what, about. What it's truly about. What, 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 yeah. what this spiritualness is, is really about. And, and funny enough, Jose Saramago was an atheist. Oh, but okay. <laughs> he was a total atheist. It's, it's a great, great <laughs> point. You know, you could really step back and analyze the, the both the benefits and the ills, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So that, that was that did inspire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that inspired my interest yeah. in it because I was like, okay, he just did this with a stained glass. Yeah. 
what could I do with a painting? You know, and I, I've always been really fascinated by by painting. And you know, my my father, my father is a really interesting guy because he he's an engineer, um, and is very very technical minded, very everything logic. But you get him into an art museum, yeah. and he fucking stays there for hours. Really? And he, will, I mean, he will spend half an hour looking at one painting, just, just taking it in. Yeah, yeah, just taking it in, and. And I, re- I remember, like he is he, he would well versed in the, the technical aspects of the, the not really yeah. that, that, that's it's the just, thing it's like just he's emotional. It's just, yeah it's just really exactly emotional. it's just very intuitive yeah. and you know he he breaks down like oh look how what they're doing with light and yeah. oh yeah, there, there's so, clearly a story going on yeah. here and he's a you know he'll he, he'll notice the most minute detail in a painting and it's, so it's yeah which in, in a way does follow with a technical mind sure. you know. Um, but, but yeah, so when, when I kind of like learned about painting and appreciating painting, that was how I learned it. Yeah. And so it was very evident to me from an early age that, that paintings are stories and they are also, they're a particular perspective. You know, you are looking at a particular angle, which the artist chose very deliberately. Is that word again? Yeah. Um, I feel like it's going to come up. And it's, yeah. and, and it's all meant to get a particular impact mm. you know and, and one of my favorite paintings of all time is uh Diego Velasquez's um Las Meninas mm-hmm. um which is, which is uh Menina is a uh, a nursemaid okay and um the the painting is of it's actually the royal family uh at the time I think it was Carlos II I think um and it was a royal family, and it's the daughter, the princess, um, getting dressed for, like, a big event. And, and the way that he painted it is Velasquez is in the painting, okay? Yeah. And you see him in a mirror, <laughs> you know, sketching the, the princess. And then you also see, um, in another mirror, you see the parents looking in. On the room, yeah. yeah, and there's all these there's all these mirrors in it, and, and in it he's kind of showing you the the various perspectives that you can look at the painting from, and that that was actually a painting that uh, greatly inspired Dali, yeah, because uh, Velasquez was painting in the 1500s. Yeah, it's surreal as can be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and it's 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 magnificent. I, well, I highly suggest yeah, you Google it. Yeah, so so that that's that that painting right just in itself. I guess it, it kind of explains my my whole approach. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like, all right, well, if I if, if I go this route, if I have you focus on this one thing, then I'm sort of leaving out all these other things. And what's the reason for me doing that? Yeah. And that was, you know, with with Tristiana, all the paintings are made up. They're yeah. they're all I created them except for two. There's there are two that I I based off of real pictures, yeah. but everything else I made up. And having to think that way, because I mean, this took me, Tristan took me nine years to write. Mm-hmm. And yeah, part it's, of that. It's, really, it's going to be released this year, right? Uh, next year. Next year. It's going to be next year yeah. uh, with La Casita Grande, which I know we'll, we'll yeah, touch on yeah, later. We will talk about that. Um, so uh, I, I had to figure years. out nine years, yeah. Well, because I had to figure out how to write these paintings yeah. and do it in a way that was engaging, one. And two, were, was able to balance getting a very particular image 
and a particular story and that tying into the main narrative. Yeah, I was going to say, so, what, is there a connection we can speak about between mm-hmm. the, the paintings and, and, and what yeah, is the main the, narrative? Yeah, so the, the main narrative is, is you have the, this island nation, this Caribbean nation, Tristiana, um, <coughs> and Tristiana is more or less controlled by the U.S., yeah. Um, it, it's actually the, the setup that Tristiana has is almost identical to what Cuba had before the revolution, um, where the United States wrote their constitution, overthrew their leaders, but technically they're a sovereign nation. Yeah. Um, but the United States constantly yeah. interfered. Well, and and actually, yeah. right, right. Because in, in practice, the United States owned 80% of the land. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's the situation in Tristiana. Um, there, there's also a lot of parallels with Puerto Rico as well. Yeah. Um, and you have a group of artists in the capital city, which is, um, which is a city that is separated into three districts, um, Barrio Gitano, uh, Tristiana proper and, uh, Ciudad Vieja, which is an old city. And, um, and I actually designed the city to, to take a bunch of aspects from different cities. So there's some aspects of Buenos Aires, some aspects of San Juan, some aspects of Sevilla. Um, and, and Tristiana itself actually comes from, the name comes from a district in Sevilla, um, Triana. And, and, uh, so, so these artists are in this city and the city is like, like a lot of the capitals in Latin America, all resources go to the capital. Um, so that's where all the universities are. That's where all the artistic institutions, business institutions, everything is there. Um, and these artists, they're, they're muralists, uh, based off the great muralists in, in Mexico. And one of them is this very staunch militant communist, um, and his name is Joaquin. He's the main character. And then you have uh, Santiago, who is based off Diego Rivera, where he's uh, where he's communist, but he's pragmatic, mm-hmm. you know. And so he has no problem working with capitalists and working with foreign interests and all that. So then you have um, Dario, who's based off Jose Orozco, who he's older. He's a family man, and he's much more interested in like the transcendent. You know, like he, he definitely has socialist kind of leanings, but he also sees the futility and stupidity yeah. of humanity. Yeah. And, um, and he's always there to remind the, the other two of that. Thinker, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the deeper thing. Yeah. Oh, I, I loved him. He, yeah, he's, yeah, he's one he's, of my favorite characters. <laughs> so, uh, the, the three of them, uh, they, they meet Amelita, who is a ballet dancer and her father is a, a journalist. He's a famous journalist and academic. And, um, and so she's very politically active as well. And the, the story revolves around them becoming more and more aware of what's going on outside of the capital, where there's um, a communist revolt brewing. Yep. Yep. And it's, it's these two different leaders, and they're coming together, and they're building up armies. And there are, you know, the, the, the government has death squads going into villages and massacring everyone. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I kind of tap into all these other Latin American historical aspects. So the paintings, 
all relate to those things. The, the, the paintings give you, there are some paintings that are historical that, that explain the history of Tristiana and how Tristiana got to being like this. There are a couple paintings that actually take place in the future. So we get kind of like a peek of what's going to happen. Um, and then there's other, there's other ones that depict particular moments in this war and, and what it's doing to like different neighborhoods, different groups, um, and then there's also ones that are purely romantic because yeah. the the plot line with Joaquin and Amelita is partly romantic. That was one of the ones um, you did uh, last evening. Last night, yeah. 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 The, that, was, the kiss. that was pretty powerful. You got to really see um, your theater background, too. That was, that mm-hmm. was very impressive. Thank you. What, what, we're ta- what I'm talking about is last evening there was, a, there was an artist um, event. Um, that, was, uh, that, was, that, was, that was amazing with... Uh, Who's the other one? Um, Johanna Tolentino. Tolentino. Um, and uh, Nelson Dennis. Mm-hmm. He is something special. He, was, <laughs> he, he wrote War Against All Puerto Ricans. Um, and it's I, I need to pick that up. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. Yes. I was I was inspired. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it's... it's it's, do you have this, do you have strong feelings about Puerto Rican independence as well? Yeah, that's what <clears throat> yeah. No, that's that's been a driving force for me since I was a kid. Yeah, um, when I was, I, I left fired up. I'm like, this is this needs to happen. I mean, that's, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Going, well, I'm sorry. Well, no, when I was uh, 11, which no, no, I was 12. Uh, since 1996, the internet, you know, that's when AOL like sure. made its its big release. Yeah. And uh, my dad, being a tech guy, yeah. uh, you know, he he had to get like one of the first computers. Of course, it was that slow, you know, dial-up, oh. and takes like thirty minutes yeah. to even power yeah. up. Um, but 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 we had that, and and even on the internet at that point, that early on, had pictures of Pedro Albizu Campos yeah. Um, yeah. after he was tortured. Yeah. <clears throat> he was the and, he was who, who he was speaking of who was in prison for the twenty-five years. Was that who? Yeah, was yeah, yeah, and yeah. he. Um, yeah, he was. He he started off. He was actually a lawyer. He, okay. he was he was a lawyer who was educated at Harvard. He was the first Puerto Rican to graduate from Harvard, and he came back to Puerto Rico and and started a, a law practice for the poor, and that turned into him leading a um, a a sugarcane worker strike, mm-hmm. uh, which was successful. Mm-hmm. And then that led to him. Um, I mean, he was already kind of a leader of the Nationalist Party, but that that really catapulted him into leadership. And there were you know several massacres and uh, by police, and they blamed Albizu Campos for it. Yeah. And uh, and that was the beginning of him being thrown in jail for yeah. you know every chance they had. But in 1950, he led a, a revolt against the government, and they they took over. Two towns, uh, Utuado and Hayuya, which um, I, th- I think I mentioned it last night. Like my f- father's family is from Utuado, <laughs> yeah. so you know we like they experienced that bombing wow. when when the U.S. just leveled those two towns, um, and then uh, so so yeah, at, at a really young age. I was totally aware of those things. I mean, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people even in Puerto Rico that yeah. don't know well, about that what history. You're pointing out, and, yeah. and, and what was his line? Uh, what happens in <coughs> Vegas stays in Vegas, but what happens in Puerto Rico that never happened. And like yeah. it's, it's, and I was, um, you know, not that I know a lot about Puerto Rican history, mm-hmm. but I was everything you were saying. I was naive to, mm-hmm. and it was I was I was just floored. And, yeah. But, well, you know. Uh, when when Nelson Nelson and I we met because um, I was writing for 
Latino Rebels website. Yeah. Uh, I was writing for them, and it was around the time that his book was going to come out, and he he was doing a lot of articles for them as well. And I asked uh, the the editor Julio if I could interview him. Mm And um, and, and he, he set it up right away, and Nelson was really eager yeah. to to do it. And um, and through that interview, we we became friends. Yeah. And one of the one of those kind of in Spanish we would, we would call it a, a chisme. Um, one of those uh, like chimeric sort of coincidences. Um, I. I interview him. I tell him about some of my books, and I the the book I had out at that time was uh, Feast of San Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. And he went and bought a copy and read it, and just like out of nowhere, like I didn't ask him to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he just emails me one day. Oh my god, I love your book. It's yeah. so great. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and and Feast of, of San Sebastian, much like War Against All Puerto Ricans, wow. deals with an aspect of. Puerto Rico that even people on the island are well, not aware of. I wouldn't. I want to bring up um, your other novels. Yeah, Travelers Rest, Peace of San Sebastian, yeah. Kings of Seventh Avenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, release, that's right? the latest release. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's stick with Peace of San Sebastian real quick. Well, yeah. So Peace of San Sebastian was based on a 2010 study that was actually financed by Ricky Martin. Oh, really? uh, yeah. Like Ricky Martin. Well, Ricky Martin has a foundation for. Um, for exploited children. Yep. And, um, and so he commissioned a study, uh, on human trafficking in Puerto Rico. And the, the study started in 2005. It was released in 2010. And Ricky Martin believed that his celebrity could gain awareness for this issue. And, and the, the study, most of the study is actually about, um, child prostitution. That's actually what it mostly focuses on. But it also touches on uh, this worker exploitation, slave labor, really, that goes on in Puerto Rico. Um, And it all runs through this network of smugglers that start out in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico is separated by a body of water called the Mona Strait. And it's actually one of the most dangerous waterways in the Caribbean. Yeah. Riptides and yeah, riptides and also storms and um, you know because you have like two huge bodies of uh, bodies of land you know in this one narrow strip of water. So there's tons and tons of uh, shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. Well, going through this channel, these smugglers build these rafts called yolas. Basically, they're just makeshift rafts, only supposed to fit like six people, and they'll fit twenty people on them. And so when they when they take people across the strait and there, there's a little islands called Mona, uh, where they stop and they kind of, um, they, they transfer the people to another raft and they take that the rest of the way. Um, these, these trips over half the people who take them die because there's, they're overcrowded. Yeah. They, they, well, well, they kind of lied to them about the risk. They're they're not entirely honest. Um, but what, what the smugglers promise these people, uh, and, and get this there, most of them are Haitians and Dominicans most, but you even have Chinese people will actually fly into the Dominican Republic and do this just to get to us soil because Puerto Rico is considered us soil. So like Chinese people do it. Cubans do it. Jamaicans do it. So, I mean, it's far reaching. It's much farther reaching than you think. And, 
in Puerto Rico, whenever these rafts crash and bodies show up, like actually, shoot, I, I read about three weeks ago, 30 bodies really? came up on uh, southern Puerto Rico, the coast. And it was covered in the news like yeah. nothing. It's like they, no, like, like it wasn't even on like the front page. Like yeah. I, I was literally, I was clicking through uh, El Nuevo Dia, which is the, the main newspaper there. Yeah. And I think I was on like the third the page. The and then I see this notice, oh, 30 bodies washed up on shore. And they treated it like it was whatever. Um, in 2011, it was around the time that I started writing the book, mm-hmm. um, the the then governor's horrible bastard named uh, Luis Fortunio, mm-hmm. um, he uh, they they had one of those. It was like twenty or twenty five people, and he had a a press conference where he spun it as being well. If our island can't be doing that bad because there's all these people who are just they dying to come it, over yeah. here, <laughs> and like he tried to turn it into a PR thing. <laughs> And uh, that, I mean, that just shows how craven and, mm-hmm. you know, awful yeah, some, some of these leadership is. Um, but yeah, when, when the study came out, it was pretty much extinguished almost right mm-hmm. away. Like the, it got no notice. Wow. And the reason was, is that the very first page of the study, keep, keep in mind, the two main political parties in Puerto Rico stay in power because they're able to say, well, our relationship with the United States is what improves our island is yeah. what makes us better than everybody else yeah. in Latin America is because Instead of our relationship. the other way around where imperialism is, you know, right, right. right. Where imperialism is corrupting us or whatever. Yeah. So you either have the, the people who want statehood and their entire philosophy, is a large percent of the population. How, like, that's what I was wondering. Um, it, it's, like, it's really about 45% of the okay. population. Okay. So, so it is pretty, right. It's close to half, but the way that they, the way that their philosophy is marketed mm-hmm. is that Puerto Ricans are incompetent. Yeah. It, it is wow. entirely like, like the colonial like mindset. We're not going to be able to. Right. No, there's no that. way we yeah. could thrive without the United States. Yeah. We need them. We're not capable of governing yeah. ourselves. And so whenever, whenever it's unbelievable. It, it is, yeah. it is. Uh, whenever that party with the PMP is in power, um, I mean the, the PPD, the, the other party that wants, some sovereignty for the for Puerto Rico, um, and they set up the the current governing uh, system that's in, in place now. Um, they they don't do the economy that much better, but it is still better okay. than, yeah. than what the they PNP do does. Like the PNP deliberately sabotages the economy just to just, just, just to prove that. Well, well, because they they want to prove that we need the United States. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, hey, we make it really yeah. bad, then you'll you'll. You stated that. <laughs> so yeah, and it hasn't worked. It, yeah. it hasn't worked all this time. So, um, so what it is is that the the first page of this study says plain and clearly the reason why there is a human trafficking problem is because of Puerto Rico's relationship to the U.S. If Puerto Rico was not a U.S. territory, you would not have these smugglers. Yeah, they are so because the smugglers sole selling point is we will take you to America. Yes. Puerto Rico will get you to America mm-hmm. without a visa, yeah. without a passport. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that study completely got squashed, yeah. barely got any notice. Uh, but it's available online. Like, a- anybody can look it up yeah. and read the entire thing. So I read it. 
it blew me away. It, it actually was, it was the first time in my life that I felt like I, I would not want to go back to Puerto Rico. I would not oh, really? Yeah, yeah like it, it was, because it, it's horrifying. I mean, you have neighborhoods, uh, well, like the mountain villages and all, um, families pimping out their own daughters, like underage daughters, pimping them out so they can make money. You know, and it's completely like above water. Like everyone knows yeah. it's happening. Oh. oh, yeah, I think yeah. so. All right, just pick up. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, so, so for our listeners, my my sister decided to interrupt us. Yes. Totally fuck up oh, this recording. <laughs> uh, so we were talking about the inspiration for Feast of Saint Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, okay, so. So when I, when I read this the, this study, I mean, it was just really appalling. And one of the one of the anecdotes that, that that I touched on was there was a case of a family. It was it was a husband and wife, and they had a a shrimping farm in uh, in northwest Puerto Rico, and they had bought up a bunch of these um, people who were smuggled in off of the Yolas. And we're keeping them in their basement. And, you know, basically... For what reason? To work on their farm. (laughs) To work on their farm for free. Um, And they they were kept in in a basement, didn't have air conditioning. Most most, uh, residential buildings in Puerto Rico don't have air conditioning. So um, these people were being kept in basically like a hot-ass bunker in the the tropics and having to work 18-hour days in these shrimping farms. Um... All, all because they were promised to get papers or whatever, yeah. and and uh, so that that particular operation had been busted by the cops, and so it was in the in the That's study, in and that was and that inspired my particular narrative yeah. um, to you know because uh, originally I was I was going to focus on um, on some of the child exploitation, mm-hmm. but then when I read that particular one, I was like, you know, yeah. th- this is already going to be a difficult sell, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. human trafficking is not yeah. what, like a sexy subject no, people want to read about. Story. So I was like, maybe I should stay away from children, yeah. even though there is some, yeah, they, they talk about it. They, they make references to mm-hmm. children being sold yeah. to like politicians mm-hmm. and stuff, but it's just not shown. Yeah. Um, so, so that book came out of out of that study, and also some of the corruption of Luis Luis Fortunio, where he basically had these cops uh, because the the governor of Puerto Rico appoints the the main cop, the police superintendent. Mm-hmm. Um, he appoints that person. So, like, imagine if the president of the United States picked the police chief of New York, yeah. and allowed that police chief to do whatever the fuck he yeah. felt like. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the situation, and. The particular police uh, police superintendent at the time, um, he was leading raids into poor communities and planting drugs on like families and arresting them, and um, and saying that they were drug traffickers. And the reason they were doing it is that they were trying to scare people out of these poor communities so that they could bulldoze them and let condos be built up instead. Yeah, and uh, and the plan backfired. When they raided this neighborhood, La Perla, which, which is a famous slum in Puerto Rico, uh, which ha- which happens to be on the best beachfront property in San oh, Juan, okay. yeah. so so they raided it and it backfired because La Perla, for being a total hellhole, it has kind of like a sentimental value to Puerto Ricans because it's so famous, 
And so you ended up having marches <laughs> protesting what the cops did. And every, everybody knew what they were trying to do. And, and instead, it just, like, fortified the resistance of the people of La Perla. Like, no, we're not going anywhere. We're not going to let these developers kick us out. So I combined those two stories and made this plot of a, a black market smuggler hiring out two of these migrants and getting them to assassinate a police chief. And, uh, and then just the fallout from yeah. that. Wow. So, what about um, Kings of Seventh Avenue? That one, um, what was set in New York, right? No, it's set in Ybor City. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and it's um, it, that was a club scene, and and that one was was partly because there's a lot of uh, autobiographical stuff in it uh, because my wife and I were club kids in okay, yeah. in Ybor City, and yeah. um, and so there there's a lot in there that's like recreating some of our experiences like there's even like one chapter where the the characters go out for a night of clubbing and every place that they go to the order that they do it in was what we would do like that that was was a saturday night for us and um and, and that story actually grew out of out of being a father of three daughters mm-hmm. and seeing the massive amount of misogyny yeah. that exists in, in this culture. Yeah, and it's, 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 it opens your eyes to it, it does, what's and, really happening. And being Latino, we get a lot of that stereotype placed on us yeah. because of machismo. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and certainly, yeah, that's, it's a big problem mm-hmm. in, in our culture, and especially on the island of Puerto Rico. It's a really big problem. Um, but... Clearly, every, all these other men of all these other races do the shit too. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like it's not like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like, oh, well, the, the white guys are misogynist. Yep. They all love women. They yep. treat them with respect. It's like, no, that's not no. true. <laughs> it's long, not true at all. Long, long way to go. So I, I wanted to write a book that that focused on that and and that dissected the various reasons why these attitudes exist. Yeah. And so I tap into not just like the attitudes of men, but also the attitudes of like their mothers yeah. and how, how tri- mothers how oftentimes, yeah, it, it trickles down and you know, the, the way mothers treat not just their daughters, but also how they treat their sons mm-hmm. in making them feel like they're entitled to get, to certain that, treatment, yeah, exactly. you know? Yeah. Um, and kind of the, the monologue that I did last night was, I'm also tapping into sexual abuse that occurs between um, older women and and young boys where um, it's it's something that's not, you know, you you don't talk about it very much. It's why men don't report sexual abuse uh, because it's kind of like a pride thing. But one of the the aspects, you know, in in thinking about um, the, the women I grew up around and and also a lot of friends of mine and, and a lot of friends of mine who their mothers are just smothering them. And it's kind of like, you know, it's not incest per se, because I mean, like the mom's not trying to sleep with her son, but there's definitely like for, for particularly divorced mothers, there, there's kind of this romantic frustration. Yeah. It's like, well, I can't, I, I can't get anybody to love me. So, so the only yeah, man in my life is my son. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of attaching to them in a romantic way, even if it's not sexual. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what the the monologue I did last night kind of hints at is, yeah. you know, like he knew that his his mom was close to him in a way she shouldn't in be. In a way that was, yeah, you know, and inappropriate even. Yeah. Um, Tristiana's going to come out uh, on uh, La Casita Grande, right? Yeah. 
Can you tell yeah. us about that? So that's, that's a new venture for you. Yeah, so uh, La Casita Grande um, was actually born it's, out it's of month, it's October. Right? Yeah, 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 so, yeah, in twenty days. Yeah, um, yeah really need to get that the website. website dropped, right? Yeah, the the website's going to drop, and we'll we'll open up to submissions yeah. at that time. Yeah. We're going to be super picky. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the what, the what, benefits. What's the, um, what are you guys looking so for? So what, what we're looking for, uh, we are, we're, we're going to be, we're actually an imprint of yep. Black Rose Writing, which, which oh, okay. published King's Seventh Avenue. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So uh, because that, that company is, is blowing up Absolutely. and so they're starting to do imprints. Yeah. I pitched them my idea for one and they, they ran with awesome. it. Uh, so La Casita Grande is going to be their Latino and Caribbean arm. Mm-hmm. And I really place a lot of emphasis on that Caribbean being that, yeah, I do mean Barbados and yeah. Jamaica and Trinidad. You know, the, these other places that don't get a whole lot of recognition. Mm-hmm. And what La Casita Grande, the, the impetus of it was that, you know, in, in my work as, as an editor, I'm working for companies and also working as a freelancer, mm-hmm. I noticed that writers... Of, of all stripes have no fucking clue what they're doing when the book gets released. <laughs> a book gets released and they're just like, well, people are supposed to buy it. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it is legit frustration because a lot of, a lot of these companies, they don't really tell their artists yeah. what they're supposed to do. They're yeah. just like, Oh, well, if you have a Facebook page, you'll be okay. And it's like, no, that's not no, really it's not, it. It's no, it's, not it's much more intensive. Yeah. So, the the model of La Casita Grande, um, which I mean I I don't know of any other publisher that's doing the same model. Um, we we contract the writer, and part of the contract has in there you have to set up so many events, mm-hmm. you have to set up so many interviews, reviews. The writers um, do yeah, the, the writers do, and will help you. Yeah, yeah, but sure. you have to get all this shit set up. Mm-hmm. You know your your website, your personal website. Uh, social media accounts <clears throat> and then you know you, doing local events doing non-local events you have to have all that shit set up before we release your book yeah so that way when the book gets released you actually have a base yeah. and you have events where yeah. you're going to be you know face to face with people and so in, in all of this we're you know um, we the publishers are acting as sort of agents and you know and schooling them and giving them lessons and um, making sure that they're dotting their eyes and crossing their t's. Um, all all the while we're editing their book and you know yeah. of course getting that up to up to par. Um, but in that way, when the book comes out, they they have events lined up. They they have yeah. things that they can do. It's crucial. And it's then crucial. on our part. Um, part of our contract with Black Rose Writing is that we have to participate in book fairs as well. Yeah. Black Rose Writing has a presence at, I think it's 35 book festivals. Wow. Um, so, you know, we, basically the, the agreement we have with them is we have to do at least two of them mm-hmm. um, every year. And so that is guaranteeing for these authors that, hey, your publisher is going to be doing stuff too for you. You know, like we're, we're also not just like sitting back and yeah, waiting yeah. for you to do something. Of course, it's mutual yeah. interest as mm-hmm. well. So what's, is there any other titles besides Tristiana that's set up? Or uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Tristiana, basically because it's such a difficult, weird book, yeah. we kind of felt like, you know... It would one. It would be really good to show people the kind of Spanish books that we want, yeah. and the kind of books that we want in general. Because I mean, we want experimental novels. Yeah. We want ones that, that push boundaries. 
So it, it would show people that. Also, um, I, I just I know that I'm going to take care of this book better than anybody else. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I did nine years in the making. Yeah. Nine years in the making. And, and, you know, and it was, it was actually picked up by three public, like three publishers wanted the book, but, and and they were actually, uh, two of them were based in Mexico. One was based here in the U S and the thing is, is that I decided to pull back because all of those houses wanted to charge me for different things. Yeah. And for like different services. Um, what, what finally made me say enough was that this one, um, would not even give me feedback on the manuscript unless I paid them 150 bucks. That's, and that's, I was like, no, that's pretty shady, uh, yeah, that's super shady, yeah. super shady. But that, that is what Are I encountered. That a lot? That, that sort of I, I ran into that shadiness all the time when dealing with Latino presses. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, with, that, and ones that are in the U S as well as ones that are in Latin yeah. America. Charging their writers, doing shady shit. The, yeah, the it, game is, mm-hmm. is, is both making money off of selling books. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, and, and 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 they're not really doing much for their writers, yeah. you know. On top of that, so it's like, well, really, why am I that's paying? Not doing much you know, for I mean, no. This is it's like I said, it's mutual interest. That's not at all. Interest. And you know, and the reason that I I wanted to focus a lot on the Caribbean is is that in Latin America. The two main publishing hubs are Buenos Aires and Mexico City. Yeah. And if you're not in those two places and you can't get published by those two places, you're kind of fucked. Really? You know? I mean, there there are small presses. There are so a, a lot of governments have... a lot of people and a lot of... Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. exactly. Having a hard time getting it out. Wow. Exactly. And, um, you know, what, one of the things I, w- I would love is if I could meet a, a Haitian editor. Yeah. Because I would totally want to do a Haitian book. Yeah, yeah. You know? Why? Um, well, because it, it, it's a really misunderstood and not well-known country. Like, like people know that it's poor, but they don't know about like the history, like that wow. that it was the northern half for like twenty years was a kingdom yeah. with a king, and he reinstituted slavery and uh, actually had them build castles. So there's like a ton of castles in northern Haiti. <laughs> yeah, like um, German-style castles, yeah. and. You know, there, there was actually a, an amazing book that was written about that period. It's called um, The Kingdom of This World mm-hmm. by Alejo Carpentier. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that book is absolutely phenomenal. But even with that book being out, most people don't even know about that yeah. aspect of yeah. Haitian history. Yeah. They, they don't know about any city in Haiti aside from Port-au-Prince. Mm-hmm. And even about Port-au-Prince, they don't really know much about mm-hmm. it. They don't know about the, the class differences, um, the, the way even, even in Haiti, even in a, a country that promotes its blackness so strongly, yeah. there's still color differentiations that affect what your social standing will be. You know, that if you're a lighter skinned black person, you, yeah. that's how you can be president or you can be in the Senate or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everywhere, yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But those, those differentiations are just unknown by most people. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, I know about it just because I'm a weirdo who likes reading <laughs> up on, on <laughs> random cultures. Well, but also a, Feast of San Sebastian. Editors too. or writers yeah. uh, listening to this out there, contact John. He's, <laughs> exactly. He's in the market. So that is, um, that's October 20th. Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to that. That's when the website comes out. Mm-hmm. And Tristan oh, and, and you asked me about if we had another book. We, we do. It's called uh, Dysfunctional Males. Okay. And that's actually going to be our first book. Who wrote that? Dysfunctional um, Males. Yeah, Dysfunctional Males. It was written by uh, Fernando Strigotti, okay. who he does. Um, he runs Minor Lids and mm-hmm. um, Numero Sank magazine. Mm-hmm. It's one other one I can't remember the name sure. of. But, but yeah, he runs three, three magazines. He's an Argentinian writer based in London. 
And his book is like, even though his book deals primarily with immigrant, the immigrant community in London, it's not about being Latino. It's not about being Argentinian or anything like that. It's about being a man and being really horrible at relationships. Okay. <laughs> and the various ways in which men are terrible at relationships. Disturbing men. Is yeah, this yeah, dysfunctional men. Dysfunctional men. And uh, and it's, it's hilarious. It's such it's a funny, funny book. Yeah. Funny. No. Yeah. It's a comedy. Yeah. It's a comedy. You know, and he, Fernando's such a good writer. I mean, he he incorporates um, a lot of social commentary that is very serious, but you know. He, he has that and then he has a dirty sex joke. You yeah, know, yeah, a, a yeah. dick joke it's, along it's, it's with the kind of thing. Exactly. Each other out. That's, also, that's the first one that's Yeah, that's out. our very first one. That, that'll be out probably February or March. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so congratulations on that, man. That's, oh, that's uh, really awesome. So I'll be putting links to all of um, John's books uh, on the website and, um, and to La Casita Grande and um, everything else we talked about as well. Mm. So... John, like I said earlier, you've uh, like always supported what we do here, and uh, that means a lot to us. So, thank you um, for talking to us. And we, next time you're in New York, I'll do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for coming by. Man. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, awesome. man. Across the margin. Across the margin. Podcast.